The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For the more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Carolyn Chan, and on tonight's episode, we discuss alcohol use disorder for the internist with our guest, Dr. Marlene Martin. Dr. Martin is an assistant clinical professor at UCSF and is the director of the addiction care team at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. You can find her on Twitter at Marlene Martin, MD. My wonderful co-hosts for this episode are Matt Watto, Paul Williams, and Stuart Brigham. We have a show full of pearls and wonderful conversation with our guest, Dr. Martin, who teaches us how to screen, diagnose, and treat alcohol use disorder. So without any further delay, let's jump into our episode. Well, Marlene, uh, I think we should start officially. Thank you so much for joining us. And all, as always, can you tell the audience a one-liner about yourself and tell us something about yourself outside of medicine, maybe a hobby or interest? Thank you so much for having me. I'm a daughter, sister, and friend who values my relationships above all. And I'm a proud, I'm so proud of my Mexican-American heritage, my bilingual and bicultural background. I'm an internal medicine hospitalist and addiction medicine doctor who's passionate about making the healthcare system better for vulnerable patient populations. I love cooking many long course meals, (laughs) traveling to catch glimpses of whale sharks and manta rays, sporadic Hulu binges, and spinning and running. Sporadic Hulu. I, I got to ask the follow up about the Hulu binges. What What's the most recent Hulu binge? Oh, um, I think it was Project Runway, <laughs> the All Star season. Okay, I'll leave the floor open to my colleagues. That's. I was going to ask about the Hulu binges too, but I'll, I'll ask my usual. Um, just as I'm amassing book recommendations to feel guilty about not reading, so I'll take any book recommendation you got, fiction, nonfiction, for doctors, not for doctors, but or children. What's the last thing you read that you liked? Yeah, so I was recently on vacation and I read Tattoos on the Heart by Gregory Boyle. It's 10 years old now, um, but it was recommended to me by a doctor friend who is in addiction medicine. And it tells the story of Homeboy Industries. It's this program that a Catholic priest in L.A. started that um, they work with at-risk youth and, um, and people who've been gang-associated in underserved areas in L.A. It's mostly Latinx individuals. And I think I love the book just because there were so many parallels with addiction medicine, themes about meeting people where they are, not being judgmental, not trying to fix, but really engaging people over time. Um, There's so much in there about understanding a person's story and having compassion and empathy and really taking care of the whole person that resonated with me. Amazing. And that's Tattoos on the Heart? Tattoos on the Heart, yes. I'm sure Stuart's looking up how many copies are left on Amazon right you, now. You know, I, I was I was about to, but I gave up. I gave up on that like five episodes ago. Um, what's your favorite failure, and in medicine, in life, in anything, and what did you learn from it? Well, favorite I'm very fa- good at feeling. <laughs> um, I think that you know, failure is part of success, and as long as you keep trying, that uh, a lot can come of it. One example that comes to mind is when I was in undergrad and I remember taking my first OCHEM class and feeling like maybe I didn't belong in medicine. So I actually 
quit kind of for a year. I um, tried econ and math because I, I really love math and maybe I thought I would teach one day or something like that. But I kept volunteering at the free clinic and I missed it so much that I was like, I have to just, you know, I, I have to do this. So I went back, I kept taking OCHEM. I got help from the TAs and, and it's, it's fine. I am here now and I'm <laughs> so glad I'm here because I love what I do and I can't imagine doing anything else. Right. Well, now you can do all the volumes of OCHEM that come along with medicine. So that's great. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I think OCHEM is like the most dreaded class everywhere. <laughs> oh. I've used it once in medicine. I also like how you thought OCHEM was too hard. So you decided to go for math and economics. Right. Econ. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which terrifies most physicians. <laughs> once you get into abstract math, you just start questioning reality. <laughs> And that's why I left that. <laughs> <laughs> and on that on that note, then, what would you say, Marlene? What's the best advice that you've ever received as a learner or as a teacher or just anywhere along the way in your career? It came from one of my mentors in medical school, Dr. Oscar Salvatera. He passed away last year, and he's one of the most incredible individuals that I've been lucky to have in my life. When he got Parkinson's, he he stopped working as a urologist and all that energy he put into his patients, he put into medical student advising. So that's how I was able to cross paths with him. And he always reminded me that life was about people. And so this is like what I carry forward in my day to day with all the people that, that, that I meet and why I think I invest so much in my relationships. Excellent. Carolyn, let's go to you for a pick of the week. Yeah, so I just last night, uh, actually, I watched the movie The Quiet Place and absolute and loved it and loved it. It's definitely a horror movie with unexpected twists, and it was it was just fabulous. Is that the John Krasinski? Yeah, you can stream it on uh, Amazon Prime now. So okay. I think there's a second one coming out now too. Uh, I think I heard about that. Yeah, there like is. a prequel. Yep. So speaking of movies, I know Stuart would like to try to top, I apparently try to top Paul's review of the movie Cats. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to top it at all. In fact, it was Paul's <laughs> review of Cats that made me go see Cats. And maybe I should have known a little bit more about it. I mean, I, it's it's kind I of I talked a... about it for 15 minutes in front of you. What more do you need? <laughs> well, that, that actually intrigued me even more. And so I, I told my son, who's 11, he's like, man, we got to go see that. It's the worst movie ever. And uh, I don't know why it's rated PG um, there. It, yeah, it's not family friendly whatsoever. <laughs> I probably should have watched some of the musical. Uh, I, what, when the movie was over, first of all, I laughed the entire time. I felt like I was probably on psychedelic mushrooms. Um, but uh, I have no idea what I watch. I have no clue what the plot is. I'm so confused. And literally when I came home, I didn't want to look at my cats. <laughs> wow. I mean, I've, I watch a lot of movies and I have not thought about a movie as much as I thought about cats in like a decade. I, like I, I am, I, I told broken my brain. Yeah. I, I told my daughters, they should probably take a group of friends and go see cats. It's, it's a once in a lifetime experience. I'm just, I think Paul's, uh, <laughs> Paul's now add your review to it. Uh, and just, just that movie, I, every time I think of it, I just, I just start it's laughing. So it's so atrocious. I just, yeah. I can't get the images out of my head. Well, uh, I think people should check out the Flophouse episode where they, they talk about the entire movie of Cats. Yep, and amazing. And uh, they try to make sense what of it, the... which they do not, but. <laughs> I think I would rather watch a movie uh, just watching people watching the movie Cats. And so like Mystery Science. Reactions are. <laughs> so like Mystery Science Theater 3000 on Cats. <laughs> exactly, exactly. 
All right. I think we're at a point where we really need to go to a case from Cashlack. And Carolyn, who better to tell us about said case than, than you? Great. So today we have Mr. Hops. He is a 64-year-old male who has a history of hypertension, hepatic steatosis, who actually presents to the ER with six episodes of hematemesis. He's admitted to the medicine service, started on an IV PPI, and requires one unit of packed red blood cells to keep his hemoglobin about seven. GI performs an EGD, and they find a Mallory Weiss tear. After the procedure, Mr. Hobbs states, you know what? I did have 12 beers the day prior to the initiation of the hematemesis. The hospital team decides to consult the Addiction Medicine Console Service to help evaluate and treat Mr. Hopp's suspected diagnosis of alcohol use disorder. So Marlene, our first question, just taking a little bit of a step back, is how do you actually define unhealthy alcohol use um, and risky drinking? That's a great question, and it's important to differentiate between them. And first, taking a step back before we even get to um, risky drinking, there are people who don't drink and people who have low-risk use. Then when we get into the big bucket of unhealthy use, we have a continuum that involves everything from risky drinking to a severe alcohol use disorder. Risky drinking is no more than four drinks per day or 14 per week for men. And then for women, it's defined as no more than three drinks per day and more than seven per week. I I noticed that alcohol, unlike coffee, alcohol, all the, the recent observational studies I've seen of like alcohol use have been unfavorable. Paul, coffee still riding strong, right? No threshold. Coffee's doing great. Yep. <laughs> I think linear relationship with mortality. The more coffee, the longer you live. Yeah. I, I just think, I, I think we've talked about this on the show before. The, the One of the observational studies that I think they looked at even up to seven drinks per week uh, seemed like it was, it might have, might have an effect on mortality, a negative effect. I'm not sure. Is there any level of alcohol use that's now considered like safe or recommended? That's also, that comes up a lot. I usually don't recommend to my patients, you know, to drink a couple of drinks to get to that point on the curve where maybe there is probably a benefit for certain things because I think that's really hard to do. And because I work in the hospital setting I and I'm taking care of people who are coming in with complications of alcohol use disorder, it really is in, in my bet, you know, in the patient's best interest for me to, to reduce the harms from use and educate them about safe drinking levels, but then also things that are in line with with their goals. I think it's just really hard to get to that point on the curve where you you think they may benefit from some of the the effects of alcohol. So screening is like the Probably the first thing that we should talk about for for most patients. What? How do you recommend we screen? Because you were telling us about this. It sounds like cage is dead. We should no longer be. We should no longer be using the cage questions to try to assess. Did we ever have? <laughs> uh, that's what yeah, I remember I, being taught. <laughs> I was definitely. I also was. That's all I remember from medical school. Learning about it in in the topic of addiction medicine. Right. That's that's what I remember learning. Um, in terms of risky screening. Um, I would definitely screen Mr. Hops when he is stable. You know, he's had his procedure. We heard in his one-liner that he's had 12 beers prior to the hematemesis. He also has hypertension and hepatic steatosis to potential complications of alcohol use. And so when we look at the screening tools, most the one thing to know is that most of them have been validated for use in the outpatient setting, and they work better when they're self-administered. So the patients are taking a questionnaire, they're doing an online survey, something like that. But that said, because the prevalence of alcohol is so high among hospitalized patients, 
um, of alcohol use and alcohol use disorder, I would, I, I, I find it really useful. And then I think the other part of this is that like in general, we underscreen people for, for alcohol use for, for risky drinking. The US Preventative Task Force recommends that all adults are screened. Um, and so we have a wonderful opportunity to screen people in the hospital who may be unconnected to care. If Mr. H had been hospitalized where I work, his admitting nurse would have already administered one of the screening tests that we're going to discuss, the audit C. Can you tell us, let's start with a one que- single question screen first, and then, and then tell us about the audit C. Yes. So the, the single question screener is how many times in the past year have you had four or more drinks in a day if you're a woman and then five or more drinks in a day if you're a man? Anything other than zero is positive and it's positive for unhealthy use. Okay. And it's 82% sensitive and 79% specific for unhealthy alcohol use. Great. And I think that's a great point you said. It's just one question. So, and it's just a screening test. That doesn't actually give us a diagnosis. So, so if you do get a positive on that screen, what's sort of your next steps? So the next step is to assess for an alcohol use disorder using the gold standard. Um, I, the gold standard is a DSM-5 criteria. Um, That's how alcohol use disorder is defined. It's divided into mild, moderate, or severe alcohol use disorder. People who have two to three criteria have a mild alcohol use disorder, four to five is a moderate alcohol use disorder, and then six or more is a severe alcohol use disorder. The nice thing about this is that it translates to other use disorders like stimulants and opioid use disorder. I personally, when I'm diagnosing alcohol use disorder, I start by having open-ended conversation with my patients about how alcohol is affecting their lives. Really a lot of comes out of the, that conversation. And then I remember the criteria by breaking them down into the physiologic complications of alcohol use. So withdrawal intolerance, those are two already. And then I think of my five C's, loss of control, craving, health, and relationship consequences, which are two, a compulsion to drink, and then being unable to cut back. And there's a couple of others. But if you just remember the withdrawal tolerance and then the five C's, you're well on your way to, to diagnosing an alcohol use disorder, and you can do that at the bedside. And uh, I'm curious too about tolerance. Like, uh, like I have a sense of what tolerance is, you know, but I don't know if my patients always always do. Or how do you sort of assess more about what that means for a patient? So, you know, I I will ask them if they're needing more to get the same effect, um, if they're having to increase the what they're using over time. And I guess practically speaking, and I, I've had this question about sort of other substance use as well. What is how is it helpful to stratify between mild, moderate, and and severe? Does it change the way that you actually treat, or is it just help you sort of frame the, how how sick someone actually is? Yeah, that's that's a great question. You know, um, I for a lot of the studies um, that they they do when looking at alcohol use disorder, they they look at moderate to severe use, and they're what people include in a, a lot of the uh, medication tr- treatment protocols. But a lot of the studies haven't included the people with a mild use disorder. And to be honest, I think we treat them all the same way. So if somebody has two or more criteria, they have an alcohol use disorder. If they have, I think it's good to remember if they have six or more, it's a severe use disorder. It probably, those people uh, uh, are having more harmful effects from alcohol in their lives and they're, they are at higher risk. So I think that's really what it comes down to. With this patient, um, Mr. H, he, he screens positive on the audit C 
and I don't know if we talked the specifics, but the Audit C, it's there's three parts to it. Uh, you can pull it up on MD Calc or whatever your favorite bedside, you know, point of care calculator are, and ask the ask the questions, and they kind of just quantify some of these these things. And then, so he screams positive on that. Um, we think he has a moderate alcohol use disorder. So, what would sort of be your spiel to this patient? Like, how are you going to explain to him what what that means, and and, and let's go from there. Yeah, I I think when I'm talking to him, I probably in my head will probably think of Espert and a lot of other providers might 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 think of that. So Espert is this evidence-based framework for screening, brief intervention, and referring to treatment. If Mr. H screened positive for risky drinking but not for alcohol use disorder, then we just do the brief intervention. This m- means we ask the patient for permission and t- about talking about his alcohol use. We give him feedback about the risk and we elicit motivations to change as well as goal setting. But in somebody who has alcohol use disorder, the brief intervention alone has not been shown to be efficacious. Really, when somebody meets the criteria for for an alcohol use disorder, they, they need more than a brief intervention. And this is where we recommend medication treatment and or psychosocial interventions. So with Mr. H., he has an alcohol use disorder, so I'd want to recommend medications and or psychosocial interventions right away. But I think the first thing is to take a step back from wanting to reflexively do that um, and really use motivational interviewing skills to find out what he wants. I took this awesome, awesome course by Stephen Malcolm um, Berg-Smith in motivational interviewing, and I loved it. He has this incredible energy for teaching MI. It helped me to have more satisfying conversations with my patients that are more real about things in it, about addiction medicine and about their use, but a lot of other health-related behaviors. And I think in addiction medicine, communication is our is our most important tool. Do you have any favorite pearls from that that course you want to share with us? Yeah, I always medicine? remember yeah. ORs, um, open-ended questions, affirmations, using reflective statements, and then summarizing. And always remembering that, like, patients should be talking way, way, way more than you should. That's probably always true. <laughs> yes. Marlene, do you have a specific way that you explain to the patient, like, hey, you know, based on the DSM-5 criteria, you have a moderate alcohol use disorder. But how would you, what would it sound like if you're actually telling Mr. H about, you know, that you're worried about his drinking? How do you how do you sort of bring that up with him or... How do you broach broach the topic? Yeah, with him, you know, he screened positive. So I, for risky drinking, and then we we uh, did we looked for alcohol use disorder during the D- DSM five, and then I'd sit down with him and I'd ask him, I'd just ask him to tell me about his alcohol use. He would start talking. Um, he'd tell me how it was affecting his health we would see if he would get to the point where he could see that it's related to why he's in the hospital. He may be having uh, trouble with his family, lost his job, other things because of, of alcohol being in his life. And then I would explore motivations to change. Like, you know, what are some reasons? Um, as soon as he like mentioned any sort of change talk. Um, so for example, him saying, you know, I want, I wish I had a better relationship with my family. I might, might respond, you want to cut back on your alcohol use because you want to be a better family member or reconnect with your family, something like that. And I, you don't have to tell the patient that they have 
most of the time that they have an alcohol use disorder, they know, um, you know, and if if they don't know or if they're pre in the pre-contemplative phase where it hasn't come up, I think, um, you know, when they're like, you roll with the resistance that they have. If you fight it, if you tell them, no, you definitely have an alcohol use disorder or something like that, you will just isolate the patient more. And so it's really catching when, they, if they're telling you like, no, I don't think I have a problem, but then you hear them say, but then they realize like, oh, I have, you know, a fatty liver or I have, um, they won't say that, you will say that. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, I'm missing, oh, I'm like getting into fights with my partner. I'm arriving at work late, something like that, where you can not catch them, but like put that information back in front of them. You don't think that you have any trouble with alcohol and yet you recognize that perhaps it's making you late for work, something like that. And you put that information in front of them and then they're able to sort of come to terms with the fact that maybe they're having some problems with alcohol. Let's assume you have this really meaningful and, and productive conversation with our patient. And he tells us that he's actually interested in treatment and he's only tried cutting down in the past year and that's not been terribly successful for him. So when we talk about treatment, I guess there's, there's lots of things to discuss, but in terms of specifically, let's start out with the pharmacologic options that we have for our patient. What, what things can we offer? Uh, is it Mr. Hops? <laughs> yes. Um, is it, yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess here, I, actually, I guess we're in the hospital setting right now. Yeah. We go back to his goals. Are, is his goal to stop or to cut back? I divide the medications into first line versus second line. There's three FDA approved medications for alcohol use disorder. It's naltrexone and extended release naltrexone, and then ecamprosate and disulfram. My first line medications are naltrexone and ecamprosate. Naltrexone is used in people who want to stop, stop using or cut back. It's a mu opioid receptor antagonist that decreases the pleasurable effects from drinking. So people unlearn to drink. It's really good for people with a family history of alcohol use disorder and in those who have cravings for alcohol. It's contraindicated in people with decompensated cirrhosis and who have severe liver disease, so child class PUC. Um, it is safe if, some, if somebody has compensated cirrhosis and as long as their AST and, and a, AST and ALT are less than five times the upper limits of normal. And it's contraindicated in people who use opioids because of it works in the mu receptor. And then we have a camprosate, which is a glutamate antagonist. It helps a little bit differently than naltrexone. It's, it's with like the protracted symptoms of, of alcohol withdrawal that often lead people to return to drinking. It's good in people who experience dysphoric effects when they stop drinking, such as insomnia and mood disturbances. And then I want to mention disulfram because it is FDA approved and considered first line. But it really, for me, moves into my second line therapy bucket because of the bad reactions it causes. Often people just stop taking it because they return to drinking and they don't feel good on, <laughs> good on it. And so um, it, you know, it, it sort of punishes people for, for, it, for, for drinking and you know, they stop it. Um, I might consider it in someone who has not tolerated naltrexone or acamprosate and they're really highly motivated to stop drinking, and they're getting other um, directly observed medications. So for example, if they also have an opioid use disorder, and they're going to an opioid treatment program, and they can get the medication administered there, like that's great. And then if somebody 
if if the first line medications just didn't work for people, then I'd move on to um, second line treatment. It, it takes a special individual probably to want to be able to take and be compliant with disulfuram, especially if they're, you know, trying, if they've had the experience probably of drinking while they're on that medicine. So now Trexone, now Trexone and Camprosate, I have to say, I see very few patients on that. And maybe that's a local culture thing, uh, Cashlack Northeast. Are these underused as options for patients with alcohol use disorder? Yeah, they're really underused. It's less than 9% of people who uh, have an alcohol use disorder and want treatment with a medication are, are on it. So there's we can do better. There's so much we can do. Where I work, we have um, a team of licensed vocational nurses who perform the full audit on all the patients who screen positive for risky drinking. And then they have an algorithm of different medications for alcohol use disorder that they uh, recommend to the primary teams. And so we're often able to get a lot of people started on the Trexone before they leave, even without seeing the addiction care team at my hospital. Oh, wow. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah. And, and so how, oh, sorry, go ahead, Matt. I was just going to say, did we get a firm definition of risky drinking? Is it just men with more than 14 drinks a week or women with more than seven or people who are binge, binge drinking? Is that the threshold? Yeah. Risky drinking. So it's more than four drinks per per day or more than 14 per week for men. And then for women, it's more than three drinks per day or more than seven per week. Okay. Thank you. So I, I guess I wanted to ask for the, for the medications, and I guess this depends on how we're, how we're defining effective, but like how effective are these? I mean, they're so underutilized is that they're, they don't actually work. And if they do work, how are we defining that? Is that absolute abstinence or is that just sort of a decrease in an amount that's being drunk? Yeah. So the the number needed to treat for naltrexone for return to heavy drinking is 12 and for return and to any drinking is 20. So I, I think that's pretty good. For a camprosate, it's um, 12 for return to any drinking, the number needed to treat. Um, so, you know, they're, they're effective and they're as effective as psychosocial interventions. Classically... I've always thought of alcohol as if someone has an alcohol use disorder, you know, what we would classically have called an alcoholic, they should never drink ever any amount. Is that no longer the thinking? Like, are there some people who had an alcohol use disorder that was moderate or severe who might be able to handle a drink now and then? Yeah. So I think the, the, um, approach to in addiction medicine has really changed as well as a lot of the studies that have looked at um, that have studied the outcomes for people with alcohol use disorder and what they look at as being effective. It used to be that we only looked at people who like stopped drinking completely as a success, right? And um, because we saw that some of the studies started to look at binge drinking and just like decreased drinking days. And they saw that even with a reduction or with less drinking days a month, the we, we were getting rid of a lot of the harmful effects of, of, of alcohol, those complications. And so, you know, it's, it's just like the rest of, of um, addiction medicine. We really take a harm reduction approach and the medications can be harm reduction for people. So that's a success. You know, in, in a recent episode that we talked about opiate usage disorder, uh, I, I thought the uh, the corollary was pretty useful. Our guest was uh, said that 
why would you take a diabetic's medications away from them just because their A1C didn't re- reduce? It's almost as though you're, we're saying we would only include these diabetic patients as a success if their A1C was less than 6.5 on active treatment, if you were to say that they've never, that they would completely stop alcohol altogether. Yeah, it's alcohol use disorder is a chronic medical condition. So if you think of it, just like we think of diabetes, somebody comes in with DKA, we don't take away their insulin, right? We like, in fact, give them insulin, and we reconnect them to care no matter how many times they've come in. So it makes sense that when somebody comes in with with alcohol use disorder, just making making today and tomorrow better than yesterday by offering whatever treatment that they want, that's patient centered, that's going to go a long way. And that's better than, you know, telling them that they have to stop completely. And that just, that doesn't work for most patients. I was going to get down to, to brass tacks, by God. So you have this patient, they're, they're interested in medical treatment. They chose naltrexone as your first line choice. They say, that sounds fantastic. It's evidence-based. Um, number needed to treat is absurdly low, better than statins. <laughs> so I guess, concretely, so how, what dose do you start? What does that actually look like? When do you start it? Could you just talk us through exactly and specifically what you do? Yes. Because I want to start tomorrow. <laughs> I'm so glad. There are many patients who need your help. The way that we start naltrexone at our hospital is that we start 25 milligrams on day one. But I do have to say that this is not evidence-based. Um, and then we increase to 50 milligrams on day two. And you can also just start at 50 milligrams, and that is completely fine. The reason that I do a lower dose initially is that the GI side effects, so like abdominal pain, nausea, diarrhea, which I often go away over time, are decreased if you start with lower doses. So some clinicians, if they're really worried about somebody not continuing uh, naltrexone because of the side effects, or if somebody has already stopped them, stopped naltrexone because of the side effects, they may actually even start 12.5 milligrams daily for seven days and then slowly titrate up. But it's perfectly fine if the patient tolerates it to start 50 milligrams a day. And then when you're deciding how to titrate it, if the medication is helping and the patient wants to try cutting back further, then after four to six weeks, you can consider going up on the dose to 100 milligrams. Some studies have gone up to 150, but this is really done on a case-by-case basis and in people in whom the medication is helping. And for the long-acting injectable, in terms of deciding when to initiate that, do you typically start the patients on oral medications and then transition over if they tolerate them well? Is there any instance where you would just sort of start that right out the gate? Yes. So for extended release naltrexone, um, I think of starting it in cases where somebody is having trouble adhering to oral naltrexone. You know, taking a daily pill was for somebody who has a substance use disorder or may have also uh, uh, end-stage liver disease from the, their alcohol use disorder and is taking a bunch of other medications, that pill burden can, can be hard. Um, or if somebody is actively drinking and um, and they return to, they or they return to drinking and they stop taking their meds when they return to drinking then in those cases I think extended release naltrexone can be very helpful it just you know it removes any trouble that you have with adherence but but again if it doesn't work after you know a month or two I would stop it just because it's so expensive for patients with uh, comorbid opioid use dis- disorder who are on buprenorphine and, and naloxone, do you have to adjust the dosage of that, and or how it, it does it? Would it change how you would approach alcohol use disorder in those patients? Yeah, if somebody has a co-occurring opioid use disorder, um, I you you really have to think carefully about what you're you're going to do. Um, extended release naltrexone is treatment for both. 
but it's not my first sign for people with opioid use disorder unless it's what the patient prefers and they don't want methadone or buprenorphine. What I would do is assess the severity of both the alcohol and opioid use disorder and see what the patient's main substance use disorder is. If alcohol is what is their, their uh, main use disorder, but they were sporadically using opioids, then I'd turn to other medications like acamprosate. Um, and then I think it's also important at the same time when you're thinking about uh, why somebody is, has an alcohol use disorder or another substance use disorder, I think it's important to also over time engage the patient in why they're drinking or why, why they're using these substances. Oftentimes, if there's, there's so many reasons, uh, trauma, mental health uh, diseases, other, other reasons that, you know, the patient might be self-medicating with, with, uh, with a substance. Um, and we know that specifically with alcohol use disorders, there's often co-occurring uh, depression and anxiety. And there's data uh, for people who have um, depression and alcohol use disorder that starting an SSRI helps both the depression and then may lead to decreasing drinking. So if someone has a co-occurring opioid use disorder and alcohol use disorder, you, you said you try to figure out which one is kind of the dominant one. And if the opioid use disorder is dominant and you're going to be putting them on bup naloxone for that, then does that mean you just can't use naltrexone? It wouldn't make sense to use it, so you'd probably put them on a camprosate? Yes, okay. that, that's what that means. And also, okay. just for, for somebody who has a co-occurring opioid use disorder is on opioids for some other reason, yes. for pain, for something, naltrexone is con- contraindicated. Right. And when they have a co-occurring opioid use disorder, to be honest, the best thing to to try, um, especially if the reason that they're using is because they're in pain, maybe they're treating their uh, both their their pain with both opioids and with alcohol. Then in that case, like buprenorphine would be great treatment, right? Because you split dosing into into three times a day. It works for pain. It treats both. And it treats their, their opioid use disorder. And if, if their pain is, is well controlled, then maybe they decrease or stop drinking. So that would be a, a great win in that case. And if you're going to put someone on a camprosate, is that, is that easy to start? Is that something you think the general internist should be able to do? Is, is there any, um, is, it, is it a complicated drug to use? I've, I've never used it. I don't know that I've seen, even seen anybody on it. It, it is pretty straightforward to start, but it's it's a lot of, of it's a huge pill burden. So it is um, 666 milligrams three times a well, day. That's not great. That's a- <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's six pills per day. Um, I, I think often that's like the largest deterrent. Um, it and in people who have a creatinine clearance less than uh, 50, you dose reduce it um, to 333 milligrams three times a day. And then if ha- somebody has a creatinine clearance less than 30, it's com- it's contraindicated. Okay. The Please reason note. it's nice to have that medication, though, is because you can use it in people with end-stage liver disease. Yeah. Without any trouble. What, what like happens with naltrexone in end-stage liver disease? Like if, if someone has decompensated cirrhosis... Um, or, you know, you, you said more advanced cirrhosis. What, what's the problem with naltrexone? Does it just like build up too much and become toxic or. So I think what, um, some of the earlier studies that looked at naltrexone use much higher doses of naltrexone 
And in those cases, we're talking like 300 milligrams or more, okay. I think if I'm recalling correctly. And in those cases, there can be liver toxicity associated with naltrexone. But, you know, 50 milligrams a day or uh, the injectional injectable uh, form of the medication is even much lower, 380 milligrams a day, uh, a month, um, perfectly safe levels. But that's a concern that in somebody, a lot of the studies that have looked at naltrexone um, have excluded people with decompensated liver disease. Okay. So we just don't, we don't really know. We don't really know. And I think it really is a case by case basis, because if I have a patient in front of me who, you know, stopped taking their medications for their cirrhosis because they returned to drinking. And if the benefits versus harm of trialing naltrexone, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it, I just have a conversation with a patient. And if, if their goal is to cut back on their drinking and they want to try a medication to cut back on their drinking and it can state because of the number of pills or for another reason isn't an option, then I think you can have that conversation like, hey, we can try naltrexone. We just have to monitor your liver really carefully. They would need close follow-up. I would have a conversation with the patient's primary care doctor and their hepatologist to make sure I'm board and monitor their, their um, LFTs. Okay, awesome. I think we should talk about some of the other medications that are used off-label because um, I'm sure we'll get a lot of questions about that from, from our audience. So baclofen's one that's thrown around. Um, why don't we start with that and then we can kind of pile on and ask you about some of the others. Yes. Baclofen, like acamprosate, is an option in people who have end-stage liver disease. So that's one reason why people may turn to it, right? If naltrexone is impossible, they've tried acamprosate and that hasn't worked, maybe try baclofen. Um, I honestly very, very rarely use it. Um, the dose that has been studied and thought to be effective um, is 60 milligrams a day. They, they, they've looked at higher doses and they, they didn't find any um, useful effects from that. Um, it's associated with not drinking, but it doesn't have any other positive effects on other drinking outcomes. And it has a ton of negative side effects, right? So I would turn to that if I exhausted my first and second line medications. And I, I use gabapentin more and toperamate more than baclofen. I think the evidence is a little bit better. And um, there's other reasons why I like gabapentin. And, and baclofen, uh, just to remind the audience, not never use it in end-stage renal disease, please. <laughs> or nef, the NEFJC people will hunt you down and take away your medical license. <laughs> what, what else do you like about gabapentin if that's one you would lean on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like gabapentin because you can also use it as treatment for mild, right, alcohol withdrawal. I've also uh, seen it decrease when I when I start someone on gab. I usually start actually someone on gabapentin in the hospital when they have alcohol withdrawal, and I see the benzo requirements go down. And then often after you know the patient has um, their their alcohol withdrawal is resolving, I have a conversation with them, and if they want to. The try a medication for alcohol use disorder. I, I gabapentin might be one of the medications that I offer. Um, it helps again, kind of like acamprosate with those symptoms of uh, protracted withdrawal, um, where people get dysphoric, they can't sleep. And there's a, a small study where they used it with naltrexone and saw um, slightly better outcomes. Yeah, I was about to ask that if uh, you were using that with other alcohol use disorder medications. Do you, do you ever use it with acamprosate? It has a similar mechanism of action, if I'm not, if I recall correctly, 
Yeah, I don't often use it with a camprosate. I, um, I'll, I'll use it um, more often with naltrexone. You know, thinking about a camprosate six pills, and then thinking about gabapentin. The study oh looked at right. <laughs> yeah, okay, uh, yeah, that's true. It's eighteen hundred milligrams a day, so uh, <laughs> oh. it's, that's a ton of pills. Yeah, the with gabapentin, do you? What are your concerns about diversion or just because I know there's that's one of the ones now. I guess maybe there's street value, or people use it to potentiate their high or to just avoid the withdrawal symptoms. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, this is such a hot topic right now. Everyone's looking at gabapentin for so many different things, yeah. right? Um, I really think of it as like harm reduction for my patients. And so if it's going to help their all, overall alcohol use disorder, and I would have, you know, I would ensure that it's on the discharge summary, that I have a plan with a primary care doctor to that if it's not working, that we taper it off. And I only usually try it if somebody has done naltrexone that hasn't worked or where I'm adding it for, to naltrexone to see if the effect can be potentiated um, and, and they can cut back further. But I, it's not my, it's not my, it's definitely not my, my first line. Um, but I think it can be helpful for some patients. You, you mentioned it briefly. How, what dose do you use of gabapentin in the hospital? And I've also heard of some protocols where they're actually discharging people from the emergency department who are sort of low risk of alcohol withdrawal with gabapentin. I just asked you two oh, questions wow. at once. Um, so if you could tell us a little bit more. Yeah, the JAMA internal medicine mm -hmm. study, uh, it was a randomized controlled trial. They looked at placebo, 300 milligrams TAD and 600 milligrams TAD. And they saw dose dependent response in number of days of that people didn't drink and also in binge drinking. Um, the recommendation really is for 600 three times a day, but in the study, a lot of people dropped out and a lot of the side effects of the medications were, were reasons why people dropped out. Um, in the hospital, it's easier, I think, to get them on that dose of 600 three times a day as opposed to the outpatient setting, um, especially if they're withdrawing from alcohol because it will make people less sleepy in the hospital than it does if you're starting it in somebody in the, in, in the outpatient setting who who, you know, in, in the hospital, somebody has more severe withdrawal. Um, and so it's treating that. And our hospital, um, um, I haven't, we don't have a protocol at our hospital um, where we're using it in, in the um, emergency department for, for mild withdrawal. But I know that many of my outpatient um, colleagues um, do use it um, when, when a patient wants to sort of start cutting back um, and they're worried about withdrawal, they'll start some gabapentin. Yeah, that that leads to a question. So, because I selfishly use these to to fill in gaps in my ignorance, which is why I've been doing this for for so long at this point. But in terms of one, of the, I think one of the fears in terms of his now patient doctor in terms of treating alcohol use disorder is uh, potentiating withdrawal, which as as we know and severe enough can be lethal. So, I guess in terms of risk stratifying, who is how do you sort of determine who's safe to actually manage as an outpatient? Who who do you recommend sort of inpatient detox? Is there a way to kind of tease that out to who's safe to actually treat on the outpatient side where you're not going to run into trouble. Yeah. You know, I, this is not something that I practice often because I'm only in the hospital, yeah. but I think, it, you know, if somebody has had a seizure before that, like they're, they're high risk right. that like automatically goes to the hospital. And then if I, I would also just like see if they're already having some low level withdrawal and those people are probably higher risk. You know, if somebody has ever been hospitalized and in the ICU for their withdrawal, again, high risk, I would not, um, I would not sort of be an outpatient uh, procedure. Um, I would, I would get them admitted. There are some 
protocols around who you can treat as an outpatient and who um, who you need to admit. I'm not too familiar with them. Sure. Can we talk a little bit about the non-pharmacologic interventions? And I, I wanted to open with the question of the the residential programs that, you know, when I was growing up, I would always see people like, you know, that was my impression of people with alcohol use disorder was that they would go to a residential program for like a month and then they would just, you know, be cured of their alcohol use disorder. Do those actually work? Like I, you know, I didn't have, I, I'm not sure of the evidence on that, but I, I'd just be curious to know because I still, we still get patients that of a certain age that think that that's like the answer for them. Yeah. The evidence shows that the psychosocial interventions, they work and they work as well as medication treatment. Um, And then the other thing to know about the uh, um, psychosocial treatment programs is that any of them is the right one. And it's really whatever is going to work for that patient based on their goals. The ones that I refer people to um, include mutual support groups like AA, which is probably the one that we're all most familiar with. And then there's harm reduction groups, therapy, um, whether it's individual therapy, family therapy, CBT, other things. There's contingency management programs in, in some cities. And then and then there's a variety of others. And I also, you know, the, the other forms of treatment, like the ones that you just mentioned, are intensive outpatient treatment and residential treatment programs. And when I remember when I was a resident, I used to want everyone to go to a residential treatment right. program. It's, it's what you think that everyone needs, right? That, that that's going to be the, the, the cure-all. Like they're going to walk out of there. They're going to feel better. But, um, you know, if the patient is not ready for that, if, if you know, they're wanting to maintain a job, um, they have family obligations, if they're still sort of pre-contemplative, then forcing treatment on them is just like not going to work. You're just going to get more resistance. They really have to buy in. And then the other thing to know with some of the residential treatment programs is that um, some of them don't accept like people, this is changing a lot now, Yeah. but um, they, they, it's, they don't accept people on um, some forms of, of medication treatment. Like not, not all of them have access. This is less common for alcohol. More, more opioids. That's a big the problem. Opioid yeah. Treatment programs. Exactly. For alcohol, you know, you can send the patient on a naltrexone, get them to the residential treatment program. But the other thing is that they have a ton of rules, like no, a blackout period for 30 days. You can't see your family, no calls, things like that. Or if, you know, people we have in the hospital who are really sick and they have to be coming back to the hospital for medical appointments, they're going to be missing out on, you know, the four to six hours of of treatment that they're getting in the residential treatment program. So in those cases, you know, it may not be the best option. And looking at some of the other options that have the same efficacy is better. Now, you had mentioned uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Is that is that evidence-based? Yes. Um, AA is evidence-based. It's comparable to medication treatment, comparable to the other psychosocial treatment programs. And it's one of many mutual help support groups. Um, if people choose AA, I prepare them by saying that, you know, they may want to try a few meetings before deciding to try another one. The meetings all have different flavors based on who's there. So, you know, it may take them a couple of times to find the right fit. And then if they've tried a couple and it's not for them, then, you know, there's other treatment programs that are available. I think the most important thing is that you or somebody that you work with should know um, what the local resources are, because that really matters in fostering relationships with the people who work there, 
really helps get you in the door, get your patients in the door. It just decreases the barriers to treatment access. So uh, my question for you, Marlene, is, as you said, that psychosocial interventions can be equivalent to medication. Do they work better together if someone's in medication, on medication and involved in a psychosocial intervention? Yeah, they, some studies have looked at this, and there's mixed results. Um, some show that there might be better efficacy with both medication and psychosocial interventions. In some studies, that has been null, that, that you know, they've each performed, they, they, they've all performed about the same. And so I really uh, just go back to if the patient wants to try both together, then give it a try. And if they, you know, they don't have the time or um, they can make the, they, they would rather come see you for their appointments and you can do some motivational interviewing there, then that's great. So to follow up on that, Mr. H, he follows up uh, in the outpatient clinic in six months and he's reported success that he's cut down his drinking while he's been on naltrexone quite a bit. Uh, he's not sure since he's had all the success if he should continue the naltrexone. Um, so how do you decide the duration of treatment? Yes, this also, this comes up a lot. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that over the, those six months, we've been able to have discussions about why he was drinking, um, whether, you know, what, what the root causes of that were and see, you know, if it was like stress, if it was trauma, if it was uh, mental health issues, um, and see how those things are doing. And, and you know, I we talk about, you know, the risks of coming off the medication versus the, you know, versus continuing it. Um, and if they're at a point in their life where they, you know, things are, are stable and they want to give it a try, come off the naltrexone, for example, and you have to check in regularly. Um, we might also see if at that point he, you know, he's already engaged in psychosocial treatment or if that's something we could send him to um, to help support his recovery and, and keep him from returning to drinking. And then, you know, if he says like if, if some of the reasons that he was drinking are still in his life and that has not been resolved, then, you know, I would tell him about my fears I mean, I would explore his fears and then also share my fears with him that I that I would that I'm worried that, you know, because some of these things have may, may be unresolved, that that stopping the medication may may increase his risk of return to drinking. I love that point. And I about the have things changed in the environment or in their life uh, stress stressors, because that, that's come up on prior opioid use disorder shows where I think. And and I talk to patients about this at uh, Cashlack Northeast. Like if they're if they're leaving the hospital, maybe they were sober while they were in the hospital for whatever reason. Some people are there for like four weeks on on a medicine, and then, but then they're going back into that same toxic environment uh, where they were before. And so unless that changes, or unless some they their their stress gets better, it's it's re- got to be really hard for some people. Um, and so are some patients uh, taking the, this medicine for years? I, I, I Again, I, I haven't seen it, but is it safe to take longer than, what do the studies go out to just a year? Do we, do we even know if patients can take it every day for the rest of their life, like a blood pressure med? Yeah, some of the studies that I've looked at that have been on the longer side of uh, treatment had looked have looked at two years. Okay. Um, and people have done fine without side effects, especially at these lower doses. Yeah. Great. So, Carolyn, what do you think? Take-home points? Yeah. So, my take-home points are to screen your patients for risky drinking using the single-question screener or the audit C. 
My second take home point is to assess for and diagnose alcohol use disorder in your practice setting. And then my third and last point is to elicit your patient's goals around their alcohol use disorder and meet them where they are on the spectrum of their alcohol use. Offer them medications and or psychosocial treatment based on their goals. All right. I think, I think we have uh, given people lots of tools on how to tackle this problem. And thank you so much for your time. Uh, we should give you a chance. Did you have anything that you wanted to plug? Any of your colleagues you wanted to like shout out to? Or Yeah, I'd love to plug Amersa. It's a handful to say, but it's the <laughs> Association for Multidisciplinary Education and Research in Substance Use and Addiction. It's this amazing interprofessional community of addiction medicine providers. And the next conference is November 11 to 14 in Boston. All right. Boston is nice. Uh, Carolyn, uh, I, I believe you'll be uh, close by and you are doing an addiction fellowship, right? Yes, I'm going to be an addiction medicine fellow at Cashlack is what I what I hear. <laughs> right. so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe you should check this out. That sounds great. All right. Thank you, Marlene. We will fade into the outro. Thank you so much for having me. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You yeah. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing with high-value practice changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Carolyn Jan, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chumanju on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Brigham. And thank you to Stuart for producing our theme music. Thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly for editing our audio. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matt Watto. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. That yummy was horrible. It's atrocious. Disgusting. It was viscerally upsetting. But not as bad as cats.